0: Today, we're talking about a big topic that any designer is involved with in any creative project, which is fabric. Fabric is a huge part of our business, and I think there's an idea out there that anyone can create their own fabric line, and if you can create a successful fabric line, it will make you rich. So the question is, is it possible to have success by the yard? I've assembled four amazing talents here today who are going to talk about the industry and the creativity that go into the industry. I'm pleased to have here Stephen Elrod, who is the executive vice president and creative director of Lee Jofa and Brunschwig. We have Brian Dicker, who's the president of Holland & Sherry. I have Lori Weitzner, who is a fabric designer with her own firm, an independent fabric designer, Weitzner. And James Hunniford, universally known as Ford, and I will be calling him Ford since I've known him for years, who's a wonderful interior designer who has his own line of fabrics with Lijofa Kravitz. So I want to welcome them all, and we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Okay, so I wanted to start with the two industry insiders, Stephen and Brian, because I think it's very interesting that Kravitz-Lijofa is one of the largest fabric houses in our industry, they have many designer lines. Michael Berman, Barkley Butera, Jonathan Adler, Bunny Williams, Kelly Wurstler, Nate Berkus, and Suzanne Reinstein, Suzanne Kastler, David Phoenix. These are just some of the designers who have done lines for Joe for Brunswick, their various divisions. And I wanted to ask Stephen how they go about deciding which designers to approach or which designers approach them. And then I will get into Ford's story. But how do they decide... Which designers they feel are going to create successful lines for them?
1: It really comes from a variety of different standpoints, and that fact I speak specifically to Joe from Brunswick Apes, and that majority of ours have come through just my own personal friendships or interactions with designers and admiring their work and feeling that they could add something to what we do as a brand. Um,
0: So in other words, if somebody sits next to you at dinner, they should be very nice to you, Stephen. They should be really (laughs) nice.
1: Pick up the tab. But no, it's really been a lot of it approaching... Designers that we feel share our values, our aesthetic, design-wise, but could offer something else in addition to what we do day-to-day. A lot of license programs come through licensing representatives, licensing agents. We have uh, done that on a couple of occasions, but the most of them have come through just personal interactions with with leaders in the industry.
0: And do you follow certain designers that you're interested in thinking, oh, I like this work? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we do. Does younger designers, perhaps, that we see making an impact on the industry, having a unique look. Maybe they've done other licensing programs prior, and so that sort of piques our interest as well, uh, that they've sort of been down this road and maybe have a more realistic expectation what it takes and what the results are. But it comes from very many different places.
0: And when you're working on a designer line— do they come into work in your studio? Do they come to you with ideas? Just quickly give me a sense of the process.
1: They work in our studios, which mm-hmm. are here in the Flatiron District mm-hmm. of New York City. They generally always come with ideas, whether it's the initial meetings that we have or subsequent meetings. But yes, we, we certainly want to see what their vision is. It can take many different forms, actual textiles, drawings, tear sheets, all sorts of things, but some sort of relevant material that we can then sort of formulate an idea of what a collection might manifest itself as it goes forward. Right.
0: Now, Brian, Holland & Cherry, I mean, this uh, distinguished English firm started out doing basically men's suiting woolens, right? And it was only in 1997, 98, I believe, that the interiors division started. And you were been with the firm since that point. Is that not
2: correct? Absolutely. Uh, about, it was October 1997, it was uh, a quick decision to go to the interiors business due to the fact that my boss at the time didn't want me to sell the tailors. So mm-hmm. the only other opportunity of selling was to study other clients that bought our product and pursue those clients, and that was the interior designer. So we initially took the suiting fabrics and these small little swatches and started cold calling interior designers around the New York area, because that's where I was based. And uh, started showing cashmere, flannel, those sort of things, wool flannel, and started the business that way.
0: Right. And now at this point, you have done lines and projects with design training from Alexandra champolli to Christopher Maya. I know you recently bought Elizabeth Aiken's company, I believe. You've worked with Katie Lee, Miro Brandolini. How does that happen now, to go from... Classic menswear tweeds and fabrics and cashmeres to all these designer things. What has that been like for you, and how does that happen?
2: Well, initially it all started with cold calling. I remember cold calling Muriel Brandolini, and I met her the first time in a one of her clients' apartments, and the meeting was on the floor, showing <laughs> fabrics. But it really it was starts with cold calling. But it really we started connecting and building relationships with interior designers through custom Helen Sherry from the very beginning, always grew our business by selling things not necessarily what we had, but what we could have. And that was custom or sourcing. We sometimes call it sourcing, but custom. And when you're working with custom with an interior designer, there's no better way to build a relationship to connect with them by doing something, designing something with someone that no one else has. So that relationship builds on custom. You're designing product. It's like designing a collection, mm-hmm. and you work that way. And then if if it's fun, if it's efficient, if it makes sense, then there could be a talk about creating a right. collection together.
0: So many of them are one-off pieces for a specific project that then you say to them, these are fabrics that we could maybe adapt for the larger public,
2: or...? It's actually not about the product that we design custom. It's about... Testing each other's relationship and are uh-huh. just our testing connecti- each other out exactly right, right. That's how we you know we filter, we flush out who we want to work with. And initially speaking, we did start connecting with these designers in the typical licensing way, but we felt that there could be a possible other better method. And that method we call at Holland Sherry a collaboration, which in a few sentences is basically, we enable the interior designer to own their own business, a product business, without having to invest in a product company. Yes. We allow them or we work with them to let them use the assets of our company to help them build their product company.
0: Because I would imagine without Holland and Sherry's backing of having meals and stuff, and there are designers who have their own independent lines. I mean, I can think of a few offhand. Suzanne Tucker or Katie Lee. I would imagine that's quite intensively expensive in terms of having to come up with inventory and all that kind of stuff.
1: And sampling.
0: And sampling, yes. Good point. Well, it
1: really all
2: comes back from where we came from at Holland Sherry Interiors. We came from Holland Sherry Apparel. And there was no way we would have been able to grow Holland Sherry Interiors as quickly as we did if we didn't have the assets of Holland Sherry Apparel. When I joined Holland Sherry we didn't have interiors, but we had the apparel. Apparel was selling in 40 different countries.
0: And you had the mills.
2: We had the mills. Right. We had the sampling. We had all of the purchasing. We had the customer service. And for me to utilize all that to grow the interiors helped jumpstart the business. And I thought to myself, once I did, had that for interiors, why don't we enable designers to have the same opportunity I had when I started Holland Sherry Enable them to have the same thing, and then we did that. Now, Laura, you're
0: a designer, a fabric designer, but mostly a textile designer. I mean, you started out doing fine arts. You did package design. I know you worked your design director, Jack Leonard Larson, for a number of years, I believe. Yeah. And I could see that connection because your work, I think, relates highly to Jack and his very natural and beautiful. But now you did take on that <laughs> yeah. big, expensive proposition of have, creating your own samples, doing yes. your sampling. How did that happen?
3: I don't recommend it to anyone listening out there. <laughs> and I'm listening to you, and I'm saying, oh, if I had known that then. <laughs> it was There was a void in the market for innovative wall coverings. I mean, I was doing all the other stuff and mm-hmm. licensing, but it, mm-hmm. I had this feeling I wanted to do it. And so I went to the bank, and I brought $100,000, and I started the company on that. And you know what? We did great product. And in the beginning, we had great distribution everything. But all of a sudden, I became a running a business and not being creative. And I'm not a good business runner. I'm a good creative. And so after five years and exhaustion and my kids saying, like, why are you so tired all the time? I actually merged with Pollock, who had took it over, who are experts in operations and management and warehousing, customer service, sampling, everything. Right. And I could go back to what right. I do best. Right. So.
0: And now you have expanded beyond that. You have yes. your own jewelry line. You work with different companies. I know you work with Hunter Douglas. Yep. You actually do it. You were saying one of your favorite things is the line of cards that you do for papyrus, which yeah. I think is very charming. So yes. you worked with Artistic Tile recently. Yes,
3: I just did a licensed line with them. So I am licensing right. uh, textile tight rugs mm-hmm. for perennials. Samuel Sons is probably my favorite mm-hmm. license. I'm a I hope nobody's offended when I say that. Why? Why <laughs> it's, no, I mean, in
0: past like, we, who doesn't love it?
3: <laughs> and I'm so much happier licensing, but I will say that it's equally the chemistry as it is what you can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when both work, it's a fabulous relationship. And my goal with my licensing business is not to just do a one-off, but to to grow. I mean, Salmon Sense has been 12 years old right. now, and I think that is. How you can actually build not only a good for your brand, but also some some money. Right, right. To be honest, which is
0: great. And I want to talk to Ford about that in particular because Ford is an incredible interior designer. He has this very unique sensibility. I call it refined rusticity, and kind of this love of the past and industrial elements. That even in an urban environment, he infuses some of that. I mean, he's just incredibly chic. Doesn't all do country houses? Or beach houses, which are fantastic, the ones he does, but he does urban things. But he has a line with Gravit Lee Jofa, which is very interesting. And I want to find out how that came about because it's all solids. When you know, so much of fabrics are dazzling when it's like prints and toils and paisley's and stripes. And Ford's line is incredibly quiet, but has incredible textures and an incredible range of colors. And I want to find out how that came about. Ford, was that something that you saw an absence of in the market? I mean, obviously, I know your your work is understated, but it's not like you've never used a print or a stripe in your work before. So, how did you edit it down? Did you approach Stephen, or did Stephen come to you? How did that How did that
4: come about? I think I was seated next to Stephen at one of those dinners. See, I told to <laughs> be nice to yeah, Stephen. Yeah, it was actually
1: very organic. I didn't <laughs> get just... that phone call from Holland Sherry. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ford and I's collaboration was actually, I think, very organic and just talking about his desire to perhaps to a licensed collection. And at the same time, we were seeing the marketplace a move towards a very textural, mm-hmm. solid story, which wasn't a category of product that we really focused on. So it was a hole in your line. So it was. And, and it just happened that, that Ford and his interest meshed with that really nicely. And so we were able to work together.
0: In a way, I think I'm a frustrated fabric designer and maybe in my next life, Uh, I, I would love to know what the process was, especially the two of you, since you're both here, to talk a little about that.
4: You know, I think what was interesting about my collaboration with Stephen and Lee Jofa and Kravitz was that I'm not trained as a traditional designer and that I am more interested in kind of more organic things or things that inspire some artists and and it was always reflected in my work of a certain palette that was you know about gray or blue or kind of and beautiful greens things beautiful like that flag. and greens flag. and you know when I met Stephen and we talked about it the opportunity was that he really was supportive of my sensibility and not having me have to like translate a full to,
0: line of prints, wovens, da-da, 12 stripes, or, you, you didn't know, have to do all or that. Or leopard or right, something that's like right.
4: totally outside of my right. zone. I mean, I think that's where it all started and evolved, and a lot of it was kind of hinged off my um, house that I designed in Bridgehampton that was very much of that sensibility, and that's where we actually did the first photo shoot for the launch of it. You know, I think the key to the success of a designer's partnership is about being true to who they are in in their passion and in their work from a, a creative standpoint and, you know, as these guys know better than me, but from a commercial standpoint, and I think that's what, especially Stephen and Lord. Jack Leonard Larson and, you know, <laughs> your your heritage or where you got started, who I absolutely adore him and his work and, you know, Holland and Sherry and the, the Wool Shalleys and those kind of the men's tailoring and things that are kind of, even, you know, a lot of clients today, whether it's a male or a female, they want tailored interiors. And so I think it's less about big, bold things and that, you know, I think that's where all of that, the collaboration of everyone at this table is so kind of in sync mm-hmm. of your vision of how to put us together and talk about this idea or, you know, it's really about what is happening in 2020 of the, the whole fabric world or the impact it has on texture and materials. Right.
0: And I think it's very smart, and your line, in a way, is very smart. And the same with Lori as well, because you're a color expert, and you wrote a book about color. But I think a lot of what you do is neutrals and very soft colors. And as anybody knows, any working designer knows too, those neutrals are the backbone of any project and a backbone of the industry. So how do you bring excitement to that? Stephen, I'd love to know, how do you think about that in terms of if you do bright, bold things, they're going to get more editorial coverage, pop up on Instagram. But how do you bring excitement to that, the more well, low-key? I think
1: working with Ford and focusing on this sort of category of product, very quiet, serene, soft, specific kind of palette, and having him and his talents bringing forward – on the marketing and promotional level really added dimension to that offering and made it unique and special in the marketplace and certainly special within what we generally offer our clients. Um, with Ford as well as all of our other licensing partners, we really do encourage them to bring a vision and we try to execute that vision as closely as we possibly can, given you know limitations that we may just have inherently, but working with mills throughout the world, depending on what kind of qualities or constructions or end result is, but we very much rely and take heed to what their vision is and try to execute that as faithfully as possible. Right,
4: and I think also a big part of it is. That there was never a requirement of how many skews I had to produce. Right. To kind of meet a quota. You didn't have to fit into the box. I think that was what these guys do and everyone here does. I think back in the day, fabric used to be such a, the singular part of a room, whereas now it's an element in the room. Right. So it's about texture or, you know, putting a wool chalet on a a cupboard chair or, you know, something that's hand woven. Right.
0: And one of the rules that any design magazine will tell you, and the designers talk about all the time, is bring texture into the room. And of course, you know, that's easy to say that, but what does it mean? But one of the things that really impresses me about both of your work, Laurie and Ford, is the range of textures that you have. And they're very subtle differences, but I think they have a big impact in a room. And is this something, Laurie, that you think about in terms of when you're doing the line, how much weight should this have? Do you...
3: Oh, yeah. We take into account everything. And when I'm designing the fabrics, I always make sure there's a balance between the things that let's call more saleable and the things that are going to to get into the magazine that may not sell as much but will get the attention. And we try and balance that out. We also really take into account not just texture but what kind and what kind of yarns and what can we twist together and how can we make a shiny and a matte together and what can we do on top of it. Maybe we print on top of it. Maybe we – embroider or like so we're really thinking dimensionally and in terms of textile designers and why interior designers can do textile design collections well is because and I'm not an interior designer and I never could be but they think dimensionally they think 3D because that's what they're trained at and I think if you can take that 3D approach that interior designers do beautifully and put it into the way you create a textile that textile is going to be that much more unique and special.
0: And Ford, how did you think about doing the textures in your line? Because I I was kind of amazed. I mean, we're talking like a half an inch, quarter inch thickness here, but the range is
4: kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just all done very subtly, kind of like, yeah, I mean, that's where it's. Did Stephen you think about,
0: confused. like, oh, this would be great in a living room, whereas this might be better in a den or kid's kin's room? Or did you. No, think, it was no? really all
4: about uh, flexibility. Yeah, I know?
1: would agree. It was really about the, the textile itself mm-hmm. and how we could put together a varied enough range of these very subtle textures that would play off of each other. And as Laurie said, you know, mixing different yarns, coming up with a specific palette that was unique to the collection, all
4: really tried to bring the uh, idea that Ford had to fruition. You know, I think the other interesting thing is that everybody at this table is all about kind of refinement. And I think that is what people are looking for today is kind of a selectivity and of not something that's just mass produced. Or even if you take, you know, one of Lori's fabrics and use it in a different way that it's not going to look like three other designers have the same idea because they have a different perspective. And I think that's what texture and uniqueness is all about of interior design today, of what people want.
3: Just to quote Jack Larson for a second, because I do. always we loved, love him. I won't quote Is he ex- coming? <laughs> <laughs> he's not coming, although he's, he's alive and great <laughs> and doing well. And he's here well. in spirit. He, but um, he, you know, he was an architect, and he became a textile designer. And what he says, and I love this, is that textile design is the perfect combination between architecture, painting, and poetry.
0: Yeah, and certainly his work is. And so sure is, darling. So sure is, and, and you
3: know, and yeah. I think everybody's right, in a way. Right,
0: right. Listen, no one loves men who wear fabric more than me, Brian. So, and I have Holland & Sherry fabrics in my apartment, so just so you should know. Um, but it's like the design business is predicated on newness, unfortunately. And, I, you know, as a magazine editor, I was guilty of promoting that. What was new? What was new? What was new? So how do you, Brian, especially Holland & Sherry, which has such an understated classic image how do you bring freshness to that while, while being true to who you are?
2: Well, I think uh, that's a great question because we're talking about partnerships, working with designers, creating collections, and a lot of the way Hunt and Sherry went away from our point of view, which was traditionally tailoring um, tailored fabrics, is working with our design partners. They came to us with a different point of view, more design point of view, and we worked closely with them to create something that was out of our comfort zone. Uh, we were comfortable with them personality-wise. Their design, even though uh, it was definitely the same quality, same coloring, same mm-hmm. subtlety, there was definitely more of a design aspect to it. And uh, Holland & Sherry, I started Holland & Sherry, I, I didn't go to school for fabric design. I went to school for chemistry. I uh, connected with these designers and let them do what they do best, which is design. So they really took our textures, our subtle designs, our solids, which is how we really started our business, our plaids, and they went to the next level. And so we owe a lot to our partner designers that we created these collections with uh, because they took us to the next level. And are you
0: still looking for other designers to be working with? Are you open to that possibility? We're always looking for relationships. Okay. Okay. We're taking a quick break to give you the inside scoop on the Cherish Trade Program. If you're a design professional, consider joining the Cherish Trade Program today. You'll enjoy hotshot perks like $75 cash for every $5,000 you spend on the site, access to a trade-only customer service hotline, and snappy new project management tools to make your life even easier. And let's not forget the Trade Program's other key benefits, including net pricing up to 30% off, and 48-hour hold capabilities. To get in on the fun today, visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. And now we're back. All right. Now, a major designer told me a few years back, and he has his own line of fabrics, that really... The way, and this is a very successful designer, the way he makes the money is from the fabrics. His fabrics, hotels buy thousands of yards. He uses his own fabrics, which one would think that every designer has a fabric line would use their fabric in their own projects. Although I see a look of skepticism here on Stephen's face. We'll get into that in a second. You know, and that I think there is this myth out there that if you have a successful fabric line, it's going to make you rich. So I need to ask Lori, did you arrive here today in a Rolls Royce <laughs> Ford? as the chauffeur waiting downstairs?
3: You know, what's the reality like.
0: behind this fabric myth? Lori, why you don't, don't, don't,
3: don't you, want me you go start? This fabric myth. Well, um, I don't think anybody's going to get really rich from doing a licensed fabric line. Um, But it does depend also on who the company is you're pairing with. Is it a contract company? Is it a residential company? There's a lot of difference in volume. Is it a hospitality company where it's going to go into hotels in big volume, but the prices are very low, so the margin is very low? So there's all that to take into account. Um, And these guys can change that and tell me differently, but – I do not think you're going to get rich, but I think it does other things for you and for your brand, number one. And number two, if you do it over time, if it's something that really works and grows, and once a year you launch a collection and you get more established mm-hmm. as a textile designer. You mean you have to work at it? You have to work oh. hard, really hard. That's my two cents. Okay. So you guys. It's a four. You've
4: become rich, right? <laughs> Lee Trump is
0: sending you million-dollar
4: checks every year, no? You know, I don't think it's about... Uh, I think it's about a passion, first of all, and about a point of view that you're able to have an opportunity to work with someone that can extend your vision or bring your sensibility to a different level. But I don't think anybody who's doing a fabric licensee is going to – it's going to bring you some comfort maybe, but – it's not anything else other than that,
0: Stephen. What do you what do you say? You well,
1: three? we go be uh, out of our way to make sure during the conversations that we have to manage expectations when it comes to <laughs> unless uh, my royalties. royalties are getting doubled. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, we we try to manage that from the so gut halfway go. through
0: dinner they stop being so nice to you, <laughs> <Yeah. that it>?
1: <laughs> <laughs> or they you know don't let me order dessert. I right. guess in many cases, yeah. No, it's really important that everybody knows exactly right. what they're getting into you know licensing agreements can vary but for the most part ours ask for for example worldwide exclusivity on certain categories of product that that they do it exactly just for us at least for the terms of the agreement that's not always the case everywhere but that's that's one of the caveats that come into it but we also we were very honest about the Income potential. Now, having said that, you know, we we have had some, we have one particular licensing partner that we've worked with for over 10 years, and that's developed into a very, very big business. And Was
0: that a surprise to you? I was going to ask, has there ever been a breakout sort of, one that really surprised
1: you? Yeah, I think it's exceeded our expectations really? because okay. it was stylistically, both pattern-wise and color, very different than what we had been doing, which is to Brian's point, one of the reasons we do it because it allows us to do something that's maybe a little bit outside of the box as far as the brand is concerned.
0: And was it a well-known designer? Yeah, Was yes. it that glamour name? Was it, of it a man
1: or a woman? <laughs> <laughs> putting me on the side. We'll pay
0: 20 questions here.
1: Um,
0: no, you don't have to tell that, but was it a known person that there was excitement about in general anyway? Yeah, I mean, okay. It, you know, so uh, it was a smart business decision in that sense, smart. but it obviously if it's been going on for 10 years, it beyond yeah. went beyond just the well, name Well, actually,
1: this is even a unique situation in that they had done a license for another company in the industry prior mm-hmm. and generally we don't right work with people that may have had prior relationships just to bring a newness and freshness to it but this person had done prior collections and when they came to us looking for a new partner we certainly were interested in what they had to say right. and it's turned out to be a really wonderful collaboration okay. right and
0: Brian, have you guys at Holland & Sherry, has there ever been like a designer collection or even one particular fabric that has been sort of a surprise breakout success for you guys?
2: I'm surprised every day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Here's the ride you can turn the lights on, right? <laughs> well, yeah.
2: We When we start these relationships, we start with the numbers. Mm-hmm. It's really important to start with the numbers, structure the business in a way that it's transparent. And... The more of these relationships we have, the better we are to predict the future. But predicting the future is something that I've never been good at. When it comes to budgeting, um, I'm all over the place. Up, down, sideways, whatever. But the key, though, is to check in, to communicate regularly with regards to the numbers. The design part actually, in my opinion, is easy. The people that we work with have an incredible amount of passion for design. But there's a big difference between being a designer, an interior designer, which is a service business, mm-hmm. while designing fabric that's a product business. Right. Right. The key element between the two is design. But there's, like Lori mentioned, there's so many other things when it comes to creating this product company that people aren't good at. And so it's really about appreciating each other. And I guess the key is appreciating what each side has to offer to create this partnership and yes i'm surprised a lot but the one aspect of it is the building of the long-term relationships uh steven said that uh 10 years That, that is a long time of any relationship in business and fabric but that is something we would expect is anything we do now it's going to be 10, 15 years because no, there's no design we're going to do that's going to be out of style in 10 years. Really. Right. We don't, if something is going to last only four years, it's not we don't that. want to do it. Right. So the designs we work with, the designers we work with, the collections we come out with, we expect to – the cost of the sampling, the cost of everything, you need to advertise that cost over a long period of time to make it worthwhile. And so it's all about meeting these people, creating up a structure, a financial number structure to see if it's worth it, and it has to be a long-term gig. And the only way in our business, and Lori mentioned the only way to actually make money is if it's not a short-term thing. And one quick other thing is that designers running a product business and a service business with the same passion at the same time is very difficult.
3: Very difficult. Yeah. How did you manage that?
4: My only licensee is with um, Lee Jofa, and uh, I'm not a licensee person. And I think I kind of knew my limits or restrictions, and wasn't something I was really that interested in. I think a lot of desire, uh, a lot of designers pursue that as a main part of their careers. I don't. I've never been to High Point. I don't really see myself at this point in my career in that arena. Mm-hmm. I think there's other people who do it really well, and I think that's not my thing. Until I sign with Helen Cherry, <laughs> <laughs> you know, then you know I no competing
0: light get my furniture line. Right. And well, <laughs> that's true. Furniture's open lighting. <laughs> um, and. but I wanted to ask, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm a little bit of a fabric geek, so I wanted to ask about how technology has changed what you do. Because I remember once I I was lucky enough to have a tour of the Kravet offices in the design studio. And what you can do now with the computer, I mean, I'm such a nerd that, you know, I shouldn't even say this, but that you could do a pattern and then instantly change the colors. It must make designing fabric seem so easy, which is why I think so many designers think they could do it. And I know, like, Laurie, you have laser-cut things and you use very high-tech fabrics. Mm-hmm. I mean, you all of your stuff has a wonderful natural look, but some of it's not natural, and especially now with the growth of outdoor fabrics, mm-hmm. that has really changed everything as well. So what do you guys see as... The future of, of fabrics and what's going to happen and how fabric design is going to change in the next four or five years.
3: Um, I'll take a stab at that first. Please if that's do. All right. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> things have become in some ways much easier mm-hmm. and in other ways more complex. And added to that, this whole sustainability conversation mm-hmm. is making our world even more complex. Yes. And in some ways not so good. The green question is not black and white. It's gray is what I like to say. So, but... In terms of the technology and the new techniques that are available of what you can do with a textile, and how many different processes you can do with it and is incredible. and it's like a feast for the eyes. It's like a, a buffet that you've like you've never seen in Boca West. So that's in a way good, but in another way, it's almost too much, right. And then you you know you end up with something that is amazing from a technique standpoint, but it's not beautiful anymore. So you still have to be aesthetic and you still have to be refined and distill and filter. And edit. Yeah. And edit. edit. Right. And edit. But I see a lot of exciting things coming from yarn makers and weavers, but I'm on the and, and high tech stuff and smart textile things are coming and they're gonna be in our industry soon. I mean, when I say smart, I mean like the blanket for the infant that changes color because the infant has fever those kinds of things are going to start to come into our industry. How? I don't know. In what way will our interior designers use them? I don't know yet. But that's going to start to come. I see that for sure. I don't know if you guys do. And um, that's really exciting. And then in terms of sustainability, the one thing I pray for is that it doesn't become so immense that we stop using the beautiful materials that we've used for centuries because they're not necessarily recycled or upcycled. So there's a lot of questioning there. I think you guys can agree or disagree. Totally
1: agreement. And at this point, as far as sustainability, there are not a lot of options. Fibers, manufacturers execute really lovely high-grade luxury textiles that fit within that category of product. It's very challenging right now.
2: Yeah. One of our new partners, Elizabeth Aiken, she always talks about the sustainability of wool. Mm. Um, right. It's, a own, natural. Mm. it's natural. It's natural, right? And it's, it's renewable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have babies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so when it comes to technology for us, we love what other people Good. do, yeah. but we're going to concentrate on wool. And mm. we turned our wool yarn, we spin our own yarn in our own facility. So recently, we just came out with a wool chenille yarn, a wool boucle yarn. Mm-hmm. We bought these uh, fancy twisting machines for our our mills. So we're playing around. We're having fun, but using natural wool that's sustainable.
0: But outdoor fabrics a huge
2: product line, and
0: huge. essentially they're plastic. Are they not? Am I wrong on that? You know, I know Holland Chair doesn't make it, but yeah,
2: we don't make it, but we do sell it. and it's right. a, more mean, part and of our it, collection.
0: Listen, I, you know it. It has a purpose. It's become a
1: very good category for us and one that we continue to expand. The technology, the type of product that's now within that category, whether it's solution dyed acrylic or polyesters, the quality and the finishing has just come so far in a relatively short period of time. We know that most of the goods don't get sold or spec'd by an interior designer for outside use but actually indoor use right. just because they're so serviceable and yeah, have such a lovely hand. I
0: remember when they and used look. to be scratchy canvas. Oh, that were, was all you could get. They
1: were and like a board. Yeah, they were just really detestable. Now you velvets and but They're really and fro- great. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But you you know to your point Michael you have to take into account which I don't think we do in general as a, as a culture is really breaking it down. Okay maybe it's made from a fiber that's not sustainable, but it's going to last a lot longer and you can clean it without, you know, with Uh, soap and water and you don't have to place it in. You know, it's that old theory is, is it better to have cloth diapers or disposable diapers because the, the energy to wash them. So I think we have to be careful in the textile industry. And a new law is just passed in California. And usually when it starts in California, it trickles to the rest of the country. I forget what it's called, but that burn for the fabric for upholstery right. and it would eliminate most natural fibered upholstery fabrics which would be horrific. Uh-huh.
2: Not wool though.
3: No, <laughs> no, 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 Not wool. <laughs> right, you're wool, a one-man one
0: band here.
2: <laughs> um, but sustainable to me and being green I always say is buy better quality, buy fewer, mm-hmm. and take care of it. Right. right. And that's something to me is something I want to live by. I
0: also wanted to ask you about you know, the internet has changed everything. It's certainly changed media business, and it's changed the design business. How is it going to change the fabric business and the fact that people now go online to shop? I mean, now, I know Holland & Sherry is to the trade only, as is Kravit Lee Jofa. So how do you see that changing? Lori? do you sell much stuff
3: online? Uh, not yet, no. no. And we sell to the trade only, mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. Um I would love to know if you, as an interior designer, would still buy from me if I was also selling to the end user.
4: Sure, absolutely. I think it's all about your eye and selectivity. It's and how you use it too. How you right? use it. I think, and the that it's biggest, a fair uh, pricing structure. The right. biggest <laughs> archaic thing in the interior design world is that it's only open Monday through Friday. Right. And all these design buildings, people don't work on Saturdays. A lot of people don't work on Saturdays, and they, I think, they're missing out on a huge opportunity of. Selling things and and generating more revenue because of not well the
0: design industry thinks that. they're in Paris that's why so they only have to work five days a week <laughs> yeah but
4: you know I mean no I'm sure it's hard I asked somebody the other day uh, in my office I said when was the last time you were out in the market shopping and they were like I don't know when and so I,
3: how do you pick a fabric without touching and feeling and a lot
4: of it is done uh, a lot of people just call a showroom or email they email a showroom. Mm-hmm. ask for samples in a certain range and you know that's what they get Um, but
0: that's expensive for the fabric
3: houses hence the showrooms
1: yes and and actually then it's had um, an effect on even traffic within our physical showrooms That traffic has gone down Mm. because we see so much more use of of our internet site or like the Hakeens
4: they come to the office and Mm -hmm. make a presentation of a sensibility that they think is kind of our uh, where we are with what we use on jobs right well, I guess the, the party
0: line that I've heard from directors of showrooms is that the tra- traffic is down, but the sales are consistent.
1: They are. We're you know, not which,
0: is, which means people are shopping online. So, Brian, how are you going to address that? Because you seem very skeptical about all of this.
2: One thing I've learned from our the founder of our parent company, uh, Spencer Hayes, of Tom James, was he started his business by direct selling. Picking up at the phone, calling, and visiting Going to their location. And that's how I started Holland Share Interiors. And that's what we're going to continue doing. We're going to be focusing on the interior designer. We're going to be picking up the phone, visiting them, showing them our product, being excited about the product, and giving them samples. It's really basic. This that hasn't changed in 50 years. That's how we're going to continue to do it. We're in the luxury business. There is a lot of luxury. Companies out there, and they're—I don't know how successful they are on the on the internet. Mm-hmm. I know mid-price companies are doing really well on the internet. But when a wealthy person wants to buy something of luxury, they want to enjoy the process, and it's about the people you deal with, it's about the surroundings you are in, and it's about having fun. And so we well, want to create that fun right, at Halloween sure. right. You're not going to buy a Birkin bag online. Yeah, it's champagne. Champagne.
1: champagne. Well, and at the end of the day, too, if it if um. An end user, a customer, buys something on the internet, some of our products, you know, they still don't necessarily have the access to the workrooms to make right. the draperies right. out of it or right. the upholstery. So that's where I think right. the designer's value will always be oh, I, paramount I, in the industry. I, so. I think
0: designers are not going anywhere. Yeah. I think they're more important than ever. But it's like how... But there's People barely could dress
2: themselves. How are they going to dress the home?
0: Exactly. Now, I wanted to ask you... I'm going to put you all on the spot a little bit here. What happens... How or how do you deal with it when say a designer that you've commissioned or working with, or Laura, you know you've been somebody's come to you and said I want you to design this collection, this licensing or whatever, and it's bad, you know it doesn't work. What, how how do you handle that? What do you work with them to improve it? Do you realize this is a loss leader? What what happens?
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, it's a collaboration, and so I think you know they respect our opinion. Obviously, we give them feedback as far as the design, um, the possibility of even executing it, then finally the commerciality of it. Um, so it's again very collaborative, and you know, so very you don't just say
0: this is ugly. and very <laughs> diplomatic. <laughs> and you get very diplomatic. It's hard to sell, yeah, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. yeah,
3: I have this four-phase process, and phase oh, you're so scientific, f- Lord. I I I do, and it works really well with whatever license I'm doing. And like it's you know we've met and we're decided to do this. And phase one is concept and we sit together and we really talk that through so we make sure we're on the same page. Phase 2 is first designs and we talk that through and then we tweak and then we come back and then we finalize and then we color. And the last is launch, which is a very integral part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. So that way you're staying close but not too close so you can't there's not a chance to go too far askew.
0: Yeah, you can nip it in the bud and
1: see. Our process is very much the same. Right. I mean, it right. very much right. mirrors right. what what And, and, is. and Brian, would, would you say
0: much the same? I mean, have Absolutely. you ever had a fiasco that you've had to, like, pull the fire, out, iron out of the fire?
2: It's one of the things where if it doesn't work, you don't do it again.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, and one last question because I'm so appreciative of all your insights and wisdom here. What would you say – because I know despite – people are going to listen to this. Despite what we've said about not making much money, how difficult it is to do a line of fabrics to create – come a, I know there are people out there who are still dreaming of creating their own line of fabric. So I'm going to start with you, Ford. Since you did it, what advice would you give to a designer who's thinking about creating a fabric line? What would be the that you would say, Ford?
4: I would say the first thing is keep dreaming and uh, be passionate and reach for whatever you want. And the second thing is to be true to what your sensibility is and your point of view I think in today's world, so many people have Pinterest boards and kind of come up with kind of storylines of who they think they are or what they think their sensibility should be or what they think their house should look like or what the color forecasts are. And I think that's all just kind of bullshit. And I think that people should just follow what they're most passionate about. And I think, you know, everyone at this table has been – consistent with that, and I think that's why we're all here for you, Michael, because I think you've seen that kind of authenticity in our passion, and that passion and creativity is before commercial. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Lori, what what, what would you say?
3: Um, I would say that if you feel passionate about textiles and you want to do a collection— You identify the companies that you love, that you feel you could bring something to the table but have still a synergy, something new but be synergetic with, and give them a call and and present and know that you can't just give them some sketch and then have the collection launch. Know that you have to be willing to work hard. (laughs) And really care about it, as you said, have passion for it and put love into it. And if all of that, those parts work, it will be successful. It will be. And maybe mm-hmm. you won't be, you know, flying private jets, but,
4: business right. class. but it'll be but business. maybe business maybe class. Maybe business class. The well, least economy well. plus exactly.
3: No, because I think
0: Laurie the a very valid point. Brian, Stephen, these are experts. They know what's worked for them in the past. They know what the market is. So Brian, you weigh in here.
2: First of all, I would say know the numbers, understand the business, try to understand the business. Ask the right questions, ask a lot of questions. One question I always ask ask the designer is what fabric do you buy a lot of, or what product can't you find? Obviously, point of view is really important for the designer, absolutely important. It needs to be, your product has to separate itself in a showroom that's filled with fabric. So it needs a point of view, it needs a look needs to look separate than other lines. And I always say that the designer needs to sell it themselves. They need to love it so much they want to share it with other people. So there's no better salesperson for the product than the person who designed the product. Very true. Very true. Stephen, you want to add anything? I would
1: just um, reiterate all the things that Lori and Brian have said. It's really bringing a singular vision, something you're very passionate about, something that you believe in, and then staying true to that and, and then working with your partner because they're the ones who really have the technical know-how, the market know-how to to bring it to market right. and make it a successful yes, venture.
0: Creating it and marketing it are two crucial parts, I'm not just designing it. The know?
1: other thing I would add, and, and mm-hmm. I've opened up Pandora's box, but you know we have designers come to us vis-a-vis licensing engagements. And I always have a little bit of a mixed emotions about that because they've – employed an agent to represent them. And sometimes I think they have unrealistic expectations because of that. They've uh, oftentimes made sizable investments within the agent and their contract. Many times they've put together a portfolio of designs that they've hired an outside designer to Mm -hmm. execute for them. And I'm not sure that that's really the best path.
0: Because they're really showing themselves to be a packager as opposed to a designer. Well, and the also, fa- fabrics would be just one part of this empire they're building. And, 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 and I think
1: it builds on, sometimes it uh, can right. build on right. ex- expectations. Right. Like, you know, we're going to take that book of designs they've put together and execute them right. verbatim, right. and it just right. doesn't work right. that way. Right. Right.
3: But the only one thing about the agent is that a lot of designers like myself Aren't very good at or enjoy business. the negotiating right, business. Yeah, right.
0: No, I, I can relate. Fair to enough. That. Fair enough. I get that. But I can see how if somebody comes to you and they, they're going to do this fabric collection here and they're going to do a furniture collection here, and you're thinking, that's not enough time or attention to the fabrics, you know? And I they would, just,
1: uh, they're so married to what they've right, put together that right. they.
0: It's all done. They feel it's a done, yeah, done. They feel it's done, done and
1: it's not at all. It's, no, just, it's
0: just barely the beginning.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, I have one bit of advice that I'm going to add to anybody who wants a creative fabric line, and that is if you go to a Design World dinner, switch around the place cards so that you're seated next to either Stephen or Brian. Okay, that's my advice.
4: Or Laurie. Uh, or Laurie, that's true. That's true. Not
0: you, Ford.
4: No, i sat next to you. Um, I don't go to those dinners. Sit so next to Ford if you want a beautiful— I go for drinks and leave. <laughs>
0: Well, I just really want to thank my incredible guests here. I've learned so much. We are this incredible afternoon. guests. Myself. You are, and the fabric business is endlessly fascinating. It's full of incredible beauty, but it is a business. And the insights that you guys have given have been so helpful. I know to our audience, and I really appreciate your. Thank day. you. Mike. Thank it's you. been so fun.
1: Thank Thanks. Thank Mike. you, thank you. Mike. Thank you. Appreciate right.
0: it. Thanks for listening to the Charge Podcast. Till next time, I'm your host Michael Boudreau, and look for new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.